I can't just and in front of you is to be able to dive into the scriptures both along with you uh, and in front of you. Uh, guys, I also want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be here as an intern in general. Uh, we're coming toward the tail end of the internship, and as sad as it is to say, it's so easy to say that this has been the best summer of my entire life. Um, just being able to be in fellowship with these people over here specifically, and you guys at large. Um, but in lieu, of that, in lieu of that, I recognize I've spent most of my time with the people on my left. Students, hello, hi. Um, but because of that, I haven't really had a lot of concentrated time with a lot of you guys in this room. Um, so kind of to counteract that, I wanted to show you a little bit, a sneak peek of my life outside South Rome Baptist. So my name is Chase Rebel. Uh, it's really nice to meet you if we haven't met yet. Uh, and when I'm not here at South Run, I live in Cedarville, Ohio, uh, and I go to Cedarville University. I'm pursuing my Master's of Divinity there, and as well as a Bachelor's of Biblical Studies. I love Cedarville. I love it to death. It's amazing. Um, and God is doing amazing work there. And I wanted to be a little bit of a part of that. So last year, I joined as an RA, and if nobody knows what an RA is, it's a resident assistant. Some people are looking like, yep, those are the worst people ever. Um, I promise at Cedarville, it's a great opportunity and very unique opportunity for ministry, and I love it to death. Uh, but one of my favorite parts of being an RA is getting started weekend, because as RAs, the entire team gets together and helps move everybody in for college whether it be their first year, their freshman year, and we get there and we're like, hey, it's going to be okay, you're going to do great, I've been here for five years, you'll be fine. Or it's the returning five years who look like they haven't slept all summer and they don't want to be there. Uh, we can make them excited for the year. But we always grab all the stuff in their cars, move it up to the rooms, and make uh, initial connections. Something that's always fascinated me is how different everybody packs for college. So let's take a few examples. Wall decor. Uh, I've, I've carried boxes that are full of inspirational quotes, Bible verses, live, laugh, loves, and other things that will actually help people throughout the semester. And then I've carried boxes of signs that say, Costco hot dog. I wish I was kidding about that one. We also see people who come with U-Hauls, and you can tell they're going to be very prepared for their entire four years here at Cedarville. It's almost like they've packed everything that they need. And then we also have people who come with literally a backpack and a toothbrush and then we pray for them specifically. But one thing that stands out most is that despite never bragging about it, I can always tell who has a green thumb and who doesn't based on just the plants that they bring alone. Now, how do I know this? Because at no time do my friends really brag about their plants, their love for gardening, or their proficiency in growing a succulent that's almost always called Jerry for some reason. I know this because as I'm moving people into their dorms, I see the plants themselves. And this alone is evidence enough of their ability to grow a plant and keep it alive. It's because of what my friends and dorm mates produce in terms of their plants that I know they have green thumbs and a knack for planting or a lack thereof. It's no coincidence then that Paul uses a very similar analogy to discuss the indicators for a Christian who's set in the soil of Scripture, rooted in the works of Christ, and producing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are marks by which we know we are saved, and each and every one of them is rooted in God's very character. It's only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit 
And each and every one of them is a testament to the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, resurrected, and defeated sin for all of us. So this then brings me to our main idea for Galatians 5, 22 through 26. Uh, so note takers, those of you who are history makers, uh, the main idea is the fruit of the Spirit being rooted in God's character gives the believer assurance of their faith. I'm going to pray to open us and then we're going to dive in. So let's pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this amazing day. God, I just thank you so much for bringing these men and women here to learn more about you and your word. God, I just pray that you open up their ears, uh, their minds, and their hearts to receive the word that you've written to us through Paul to the Galatians and ultimately to us. God, we recognize that this Holy Scripture is the revelation of your very character, and I just pray that we're able to see it as that. God, also humble me enough to recognize that I can't do this without you. Use me as your mouthpiece um, and do great works through me, God. We love you so much. That's why we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, so, for those of you who are type A and love to take notes, I've provided a little roadmap. Oh, cool, so cool. Uh, so, first things first, we're going to introduce Galatians 5, 22 through 26, within the context of Galatians as a whole. I think, for the most part, a lot of us actually know these fruits by heart, but what do they mean within the initial context of Galatians? Next, we're going to talk about how these fruits are a means of assurance, when we read these fruits out of context, it's so easy to make them into a new law, but when we look at the main idea of Galatians at large, we see that it's not that whatsoever. They actually provide assurance to Christians. Next, we'll see that these fruits are rooted in God's very character. Uh, we'll take apart love in specific to show how all of these fruits are actually rooted in the character and actions of God. And then finally, uh, sometimes everybody's favorite part, how do we apply all of this to our lives? Uh, we are going to see that we draw from the Holy Spirit to pursue holiness, thereby producing these fruits in our lives. So just to recenter us again, I will be reading uh, Galatians 5, 22 through 26 to start us off, and then we'll dive in. It says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. So this list of attributes is so much more than a mere list. If anything, it's kind of the crux of the entire book's argument. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to see that this is coming toward the very end of the letter. So we can't necessarily read it in isolation. Paul is using the whole rest of the letter to prove why these, this list of attributes is important. So in order to fully understand what this list entails, we have to approach it with a broad understanding of Galatians at large. So let's take a look. What is Galatians about and how does it really apply to the fruit of the Spirit? Firstly, we know that the book was written in response to some hybrid gospel between Judaism and Christianity, where the people of Galatia thought that you needed both works and faith in order to be saved. So Paul, in seeing this, writes Galatians. He's essentially tackling this very specific problem. 
Of course, Paul states very bluntly that any gospel contrary to the gospel of Christ is no gospel at all. We see that in 1, 6 through 7. Paul also makes a bold assertion, and it could be argued that it's the thesis of Galatians in 2.16 that, quote, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Thus, any person who believes that they need both faith and works is kind of cheapening the gospel and cheapening the very works of Jesus Christ. Then what of the law? Because we see in Galatians 3, Paul addresses that as well. The law, as we see, was never intended to save humanity, but it's not entirely purposeless either, if not salvation. The law exists now and always has existed to point us to Christ. He's the only person who ever has been able to fulfill and ever will fulfill the law. And we see that in 3, 23 through 29. Even so, the only reason that Paul brings up the law is to reinforce that people are only saved through faith. Finally then, Paul arrives at one of his final pieces of evidence for this thesis of faith. That choosing to follow the law is simply incongruent with Jesus' death on the cross. And we see that in 5, 2 through 6. When Jesus died on the cross, he took on the sin that the law constantly reminded us we were guilty of. He got rid of the need for the law by fulfilling it in its entirety. And that's crazy. So now, after explaining all of these things, it becomes very clear that Galatians is telling us we can have faith in Christ and faith alone. This is the primary point of Galatians. So then, our interest should be a little piqued when Paul says in 5.16 that we need to walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. What in the world is Paul doing here? He's spent the entire letter telling us that all we need is faith, and yet in 5.16 it almost looks like he's giving us commands, almost like he's establishing a new law. Is he debunking everything that he said prior in the letter? Is he establishing a new law with these fruits? Of course not. But when we read these, this list out of context of Galatians, sometimes we treat it like that. If we just do not gratify the desires of the flesh that Pastor Eric talked about last week, then we'll be that much closer to salvation. Or if we participate in the fruits of the Spirit, then we'll be even better Christians. But that's not at all how Paul is trying to convey these things. And of course, we only do this because we are removing the fruit of the Spirit from its original context as set within Galatians. So by viewing the fruit of the Spirit as the falling action or the crux of this letter, it makes a lot more sense. Remember, the primary thesis of Galatians is that faith alone saves. So Paul needs the rest of his letter to inform these attributes, and we can't approach them without the rest of the letter either. So Paul doesn't expect to see these fruits as a to-do list for salvation, rather he sees it as proof that we are living by faith, as he's communicated so obviously through his entire book. It's almost exactly like seeing the plants of my doormates. In seeing those plants and those plants alone, I can easily tell who's good at gardening and who isn't. This makes perfect sense then and further accentuates our main point. The fruit of the Spirit, being rooted in God's character, gives the believer assurance their faith.
So what do these fruits look like in practicality then? Like, yippee, that's really cool, but like, what now? How can we know that these fruits are present in our lives and thus be assured in our own faith? So let me first just start by saying it's nearly impossible to do justice to all of the attributes said here today with my remaining time. Uh, if anything, it would provide, we would need an entire sermon series, one that spans all nine weeks and goes across all nine attributes. And even that would barely scratch the surface of what these all are. So in saying that, I will try my best to communicate uh, the very importance of several of these fruits and then demonstrate how they can be practically seen and give us an assurance of our faith. And I'm going to be starting with love because that's what Paul starts with. I'm also going to be using love uh, as kind of a test that we can apply to all of these fruits. So the method by which I debunk and do this, you guys can use for the rest of them as well. So love. As we study the Bible, we'll soon see that God holds love on a very special pedestal. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we see one of the most impactful passages regarding love. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It says this, Even amongst that, uh, even, even amongst faith, hope, and love, love takes the top seat, which is crazy because we as Christians hold faith and hope to such a high regard, and yet Paul is saying that love is the most important of these. If not even more important, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7 discusses the very fruitlessness of Christian pursuits when they're devoid of love. And this is a really bold claim. No matter what good works or philanthropy or kindness that we show in the world, if it's done without love, Paul's essentially saying that it's purposeless. We also see in Luke 10, 27, Matthew 22, 36 through 40, and Mark 12, 28 through 30, that the greatest two commandments ever given are that we both love God and love our neighbors. So not only is love the most important commandment given to us, but all other pursuits done without love are purposeless. So it goes without saying that it would be remiss of me not to zero in on love a little bit. God clearly gives the attribute a certain level of rapport as we look through Scripture. But unfortunately, we look at this and then we stop there. In a world that's full of so many definitions of love, we kind of take these preconceived notions about what love is and then approach Scripture. I've seen this play out in disappointing ways in both my own life and in the life of the church at large. We as Christians incorrectly marry the definition that the world presents of love with God's definition of love and think that that is sufficient. We're told to love God and love our neighbors and so many other things regarding love, but then we go to the world to see how that actually plays out in practicality. And again, I'm standing here guilty of that. A lot of times we approach something like Galatians 5 with these notions about what love actually is that are informed by the world. So what does the world really offer in terms of definitions of love? And how do they seep into our understanding of love before we even approach Scripture? So let's look at Louise Hay. Louise Hay is a motivational speaker and author and one of the pioneered self-love activists from the mid-1900s. And you may not know who she is, but 
Her ideology kind of ripples throughout our society today in general. She was essentially a cornerstone for the, most, uh, the postmodern understanding of what love is. And when interviewed in 2004, she defines love as acceptance, accepting people just as they are, just accepting and caring. So this is all well and good. It might make us feel good inside and all of this stuff, but when we really get down to the nitty-gritty of it, what is Louise Hay saying? Hay necessarily understands love as an implicit and passive pursuit where we acknowledge people as they are and then stop there, regardless of if we know a change would help them in the long run. Even if somebody is dealing with something that needs to be dealt with, we just see them, acknowledge them, and then accept them. Moving on, we see another definition of love from Picasso, perhaps one of the most influential expressionists in human history. And if you don't know who Picasso was, he was an incredible artist, and he pioneered a new way in which humans express the human condition, their emotions, and what they think about life. Because of that, he had a heavy influence on both politics and philosophy, so what he says about love is incredibly important, too. He says this, Love is the greatest refreshment to life. Again, reading this right on the surface, this sounds like a pretty good thing, right? But when we get underneath the surface, we see that Picasso views love as an additive in one's life that simply provides relief, comfort, and pleasure. It's merely, as he said, a refreshment, something that we can participate in to gain a remedy from a world that's otherwise weighing down on our shoulders. So this next example, uh, it's a funny one, but I promise it actually has merit. When asking, what is love? Hathaway's response was, baby, don't hurt me. Okay, maybe not that funny, but it is still telling, right? When asking, what is love? Hathaway responds that, Love is supposed to feel good. It's supposed to be easy, and it's supposed to be reciprocated. If it isn't these things, then what's the point of love? If you get hurt in the process, why do we even try? However, the Bible offers a different definition for love. And again, these definitions of the world, they kind of seep into our understanding and give us preconceived notions as we approach Scripture. But what does the Bible say? It makes an incredibly bold claim as to what love actually is. In 1 John 4, 7 through 8, John claims that though those who love, love because they know God, because God himself is love. So the biblical definition for love, when prompted, is simply God. And that's absolutely crazy. Because when we approach something like Galatians 5, Love isn't something that we must supplement using the definitions of the word. Rather, it's something that we approach God with to see how he defines it. When commanded to love God and our neighbors in the Gospels, we don't have to do so in a way that the world has already pre-established for us. We go to God to find out how we do that. When Paul discusses the importance of love in 1 Corinthians 13, he's not implying the way in which the world wants us to love, but the way in which God has exhibited love. Because God is literally love. It's an embodiment of his very character. So this is important. When we approach something like the fruit of the Spirit, we don't determine how God is loving, gentle, 
goodness or, or good or anything like that based on what the world defines the, those things as. Rather, we start with the very character of God and then determine what those actually are. And to put it for application's sake, we go to the very character of God to see how we should love, how we should be kind, and all of these other things. As such, then, it becomes very clear, back to our main idea, that love is rooted in God's very character. And not just love, but all of these fruits are. By looking at the person and actions of Jesus and God, we can determine what love really entails. So let's practice that here. Again, I said I was going to zero in on love. So how can we look at God's character, his attributes, and his actions, and then see what defines love? By looking at God and his character, we see that love is selfless. Love is self-sacrificial. Perhaps no greater example of this is when God stepped down from heaven. He took on mortal flesh, and then he died for all of us quite literally sacrificing himself in order that we might have an eternal life. And John 15, 13 says that this is the greatest form of love ever conceived in human history. So by looking at God's character, we see that love is selfless. Love is self-sacrificial. By looking at God's character, we also see that love is active and love is correcting. We see throughout scripture in its entirety that God never stood idly by while his creation was plunged deeper and deeper into sin and brokenness. The narrative of the Bible is simply one of redemption. It's one where God has an active pursuit of us in order to provide Jesus as a means for correction and reconciliation. I could sit here and give example an example of how this is exhibited throughout the Bible, but it's the Bible's very DNA. It's a story of redemption. And it's a story of how God's character exhibits how love is active and love is correcting. By looking at God's character and actions, we also see that love is kind and love is slow. God is so, so patient as we see throughout Scripture. He's gracious and kind. If we truly understand what sin did to us, in relation to God, a perfect, good, and all-powerful God, then we would really understand this as we both read Scripture and look at our own lives. God gives us and humanity try and try and try again to want him and to be reconciled to him. And who knows, maybe you're not that far into your biblical journey, but I know I can see that in my own life, and maybe you can too. That I've done against God, I'm still repaid with common grace after common grace and an ability to come back to Jesus Christ with my sins and be offered forgiveness in return. Thus, by looking at God's character and his actions, we see that love is kind and slow. So all of these attributes are derived from God's very character. And when we read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through, 4 through excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, we see that these aren't just things that I came up with and then presented to you. They're things that Paul literally defines love as. These are all things that God first exhibited with his character that now outflow into our definition and practical application of how to love. And this is the meaning of the fruit of the Spirit. 
every single one of these fruits is predicated, defined, and possible because they are rooted in God himself. Thus, once again, we're brought to our main point. The fruit of the Spirit being rooted in God's character gives the believer assurance of their faith. And hopefully that's been made clear. When looking at the fullness of Galatians, we see these fruits in their original context, and we see that they act as an assurance of faith rather than a new law that Paul is establishing. We see that these fruits truly are of the Spirit, meaning they're rooted in God's very character. And then as we zero in on love in specific, we can see how that plays out in practicality. But what now? I just got up here and said a lot of things, and a lot of you guys are probably like, how is this supposed to change my life? That's how I listen to sermons sometimes. Um, But how do we tie this all together and leave here with something to do? Paul gives us our application directly in verses 25 through 26. It says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Paul makes it clear that our response is not simply to go comatose and then be puppeteered by the Holy Spirit and hope that these fruits inevitably show up at some point. But as we already saw too, Paul is making it clear that this isn't a new law, that we somehow have to brute force until the fruits appear in our lives. Instead, Paul is providing two commands that are working in tandem with one another. We need to live by the Spirit and also keep in step with the Spirit. Here's the best way that I could find to describe this to you all and formulate it in a way that's understandable. The Holy Spirit given to us by Jesus Christ makes it possible to nurture the fruit of the Spirit. We must then live by the Spirit in a somewhat passive way, trusting that the Holy Spirit is the one working in us and ultimately producing these fruits. But in the same way, there's an active portion on our behalf. We must walk in step with the Spirit, the same Spirit who is empowering us to do so, sent by the same Jesus who died to offer us a life in pursuit of holiness. And by putting our faith in that death and resurrection, we will in turn produce fruit. All right, then what does this look like? I have three steps. Here's what this looks like if you want to go from today and actually put this into practice. Number one is gaze at God in his word. And this is perhaps the most important one, and I can't stress enough how amazing this is if we do it right. Because remember, the fruit of the Spirit is rooted in God's very character. So by looking to him as the measure by which the fruits are exhibited, we can better understand what to look for in our own lives. Number two, examine ourselves based on our findings in Scripture. After spending time in deep study of the word, we can further see how God is loving, joyous, good, gentle, and so many other things. And then we can see if our lives are in line with that. And if they are, then we can be assured that God is working through us and that we've been saved. Praise God for that. But if not, then that's not a problem either. Because with the power of the Holy Spirit given to us as Christians, we can take our sins back to Christ and be conformed more so to his very character and adjust accordingly if we don't see these things in our lives. And then number three is perhaps my favorite one, repeat. (laughs) 
This is a lifestyle of consulting the word, gazing at God's attributes, and then being assured of our own faith because similar fruits are inside of us and being nurtured by the very Holy Spirit. It's a rich wellspring of fulfillment, and it's the most beautiful way in which we can live our very lives. One could even say that it's a life that is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And not in the ways that the world wants wants us to have those things, but in the way that God, our very creator, wants us to have those things, the ways that it's intended to be. So I'm going to close us in prayer. Uh, I will be up front if you need any prayer ministry along with Pastor Eric, uh, but I don't want this conversation to die here. If you had any questions about the sermon or want to just add anything of your own, I'd love to learn from you and both hear from you. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go to God uh, and worship. Let's pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your powerful word as given to Paul, to the Galatians, and ultimately to us. God, we just recognize the fruit of the Spirit as an outflow of your very character. We recognize the fruit of the Spirit as giving assurance of our very faith. God, I just pray as South Run uh, goes out from this building that they gaze at your character in the scriptures and then are assured of their very faith, the very faith that saves them. God, I pray this over myself as well. We love you so much, God. I just pray that this posture of worship follows us into the week as we gaze at your character through scripture and as we worship in song today. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.